morning. Let's turn to the prophet Joel this morning. The prophet Joel. Again, pass the, you open your Bible about halfway. Pass the big three guys. Daniel, Hosea, and then Joel. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 761. Let me uh, pray before we get started. Father, we, we just sang hallelujah, everlasting God, come down. There is a deep longing within our hearts to see the day of Christ because we know it will be final redemption and the world will be made right again. At the same time, we know that that day will be a day of great dread and terror. The heavens and the earth will shake at your presence. Help us to respond properly to you now, before that day arrives. In Jesus' name, amen. In September 1939, uh, Britain entered World War II, and that same month, uh, they sounded their first air raid siren, these loud, harrowing alarms warned the people when danger was upon them. And one year later, at the height of Germany's Blitzkrieg, the sirens became part of daily life, night after night. London would screech to a halt when they would hear the alarms while men, women, and children made for the shelters. To ignore the sirens was to your own peril as the bombs began to drop. In chapter 2 of Joel, we read of another alarm sounded. Zion faces imminent danger. An army rises over the horizon. Its numbers are great, its powers overwhelming. More than that, the warrior king leading it is undefeatable. To their surprise, the Lord has turned his forces against Israel. The day of the Lord approaches, and so Joel, he sounds the alarm. That will take us through verse 11 today. And yet, even in the face of that danger, Joel also summons the people to repentance. That's verses 12 to 17. Based on God's past mercy, Joel holds out hope that this sovereign warrior will again extend mercy. Chapter 2 is like chapter 1 that we saw last week in that it repeats this pattern of Joel sounding the alarm and Joel summoning to repent. But in chapter 2, what he's doing is expanding on both of those things. He expands on the day of the Lord and what it's like. And then he expands on repentance and where it's grounded and what that looks like for the people. 
So let's, let's read it together through verse 17, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. This is the Lord's word. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his way, they do not swerve from their pass. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? So let's look first at the alarm Joel sounds and why. The alarm Joel sounds and why. Verse 1. He says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Now historically, Zion, uh, it hosted the temple where God revealed His, His presence. Also, God's anointed king would rule from Zion. And so Mount Zion 
in Scripture becomes known as God's mountain. It's the place where God dwelled with His people and He ruled in, in, His people in holiness. Stated differently, we, we might say that Zion portrayed God's kingdom on earth. Psalm 46.5 says that God is in the midst of Zion and she shall not be moved. But here we find a different picture, don't we? Those dwelling in Zion shouldn't be so confident anymore. Some trumpet blasts would call the people to worship. Other trumpet blasts would call the people to war. But this trumpet blast calls the people to wail, to worry. An overwhelming danger approaches. The day of the Lord is why they should tremble. The day of the Lord is near, he says. It's a day of darkness and gloom. And immediately any Jew would recall the darkness that God placed on Egypt in the Exodus. It was a darkness to be felt, the text says. It's also comparable to what we find in Amos chapter 5. A darkness, it's not safe in this darkness. You flee from a lion only to run into a bear. You enter the home only to get bit by a snake. On top of that, he mounts another description. A day of clouds and thick darkness. And here they would recall God's awful presence at Mount Sinai. The mountain was wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom, Deuteronomy 4.11 says. And places like 2 Samuel 22 help us understand that what we're seeing there is God as the divine warrior king. Right? Other kings would ride their chariots into battle while clouds of dust would billow beneath and behind them. And with God, though, it's all the clouds under heaven gathering beneath Him. They mount up like this dark and raging storm before his chariot. Other prophets like Isaiah, they spoke of this same day. In fact, there's very uh, strong indication that Joel has already quoted from, from Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. And he did that in verse one, chapter 1, verse 15, which we looked at last week when he says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and has destruction from the Almighty it Isaiah 13 is a place that describes the day of the Lord. And he says there that all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. And the day of the Lord comes cruel, it says, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate. And Isaiah tells us why his day is coming as well. It is coming to judge the sinners. But here's the difference. Isaiah 13 is written against Babylon. And if you're an Israelite and you're reading prophecies like that, you've got great hope. God will judge our enemies at last. Well, what then does it mean for Joel to then turn those same words against Zion? It means that they've become no different than the pagan nations. Instead of consecrating themselves to God, instead of being His holy people, instead of being a light among the nations, they have become just like the nations. And so God must now respond against them. 
in judgment. The day of the Lord doesn't just threaten the Gentile nations. Now it is threatening Israel for their sins. But what is this day like? What is this day like? Can we get more specific? Well, I think we can, but here's where we encounter a very interesting discussion in church history. What is this army in verses 2 to 11? Now, some would say he's retelling the locust plague of chapter 1. I mean, after all, a locust swarm can cloud the skies like darkness. Verse 2. They can strip the countryside bare like a wildfire. Verse 3. Locusts are also known to look like horses. We find the same comparison elsewhere in Scripture. Verse 4. Also, notice the use of simile throughout. Like a powerful army. Like warriors. Like soldiers. Meaning, not human, but like human armies. But wait a minute, some have said. Sometimes we use like to point to the ideals. If you tell a young man, dress for action like a man. We don't mean he isn't a man. Right? We expect him to come into that ideal. And so it could be that a human army is in view, even if they march like locusts. Still, another group says, no, 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 you're both wrong. This is strictly future. He's talking about the demon army in Revelation chapter 9. Well, here's my answer. I'll give you a short one and a longer one. At the end of the day, does it really matter if it's locusts from God or humans or demons? The point is, his judgment is awful. Repent. That's the short answer. Here's my longer answer. A real locust plague has occurred. That's what he described in chapter 1. And he related it to the day of the Lord in chapter 1 verse 15. In chapter 2, he takes that locust plague and he develops a poetic theological commentary on what the day of the Lord is like. Okay? So his focus isn't so much on what the army is, but how the army anticipates what the day of the Lord is like. So here's how I think Joel functions in Scripture. A little sketch on the screen here. Uh, I wrote it in my journal. Gary threw it together for us. But uh, we're there. That's us. We look back. We're reading Joel. The smaller locust judgment foreshadows the Lord's future judgment. And I think both near and far. The locust army becomes a type, in other words, in Scripture. A type that points to the way that human armies are going to have their way with Israel. Like Babylon, for example. I don't think it's an accident that this same army is called the northerner. In chapter 2, verse 20. Okay? Let's talk so we can say it's foreshadowing what's going to happen with Babylon. But even further, they point to the demon army described in Revelation 9 that attack. 
not lands and crops, but the people who don't have the seal of God. But regardless of locusts, humans, or demons, each one of these are, are foreshadowing something about the day of the Lord and what it's like. And so that's, the fo- that's his focus. He's using the locust plague to describe for us what the day of the Lord is like. And the first thing we learn is that it's a day like no other. It is a day like no other. In verse 2, the ESV has like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. But the New American Standard, I think, is the better translation here. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. In other words, in the same way that the sunlight breaks over the, the mountains in the morning, all you can see is this vast army rising. It says, Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Now, about that locust plague, if you look at chapter 1, verse 2, he asks this question, doesn't he? Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? And so he's, it shows the unique character of that event. And so also with the day of the Lord. The vast might with which it comes, we just have nothing else to compare it to. That day is also a day of great ruin. A day of great ruin. Verse 3 Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So the promised land was like a new Eden, but bigger. In the same way God made a garden for Adam, He made a garden or a land for Israel, and He put His people in that place. But here we see the land destroyed. In the same way Adam's sin brought death to creation, so here we find the consequences of Israel's sin are the same. A paradise becomes a desert before this great host. The day of the Lord is also one of foreboding terror. In verse 4, he compares the locusts to war horses as they run. Verse 5, as with the rumbling of chariots, they they leap on the tops of mountains. Now, normally we don't think of chariots leaping. Right? Nor do they they ride very well on mountaintops. So either he's illustrating the superhuman nature of this army that, that mountains don't even deter them, or maybe we're getting an image of a surprise attack They can hear the rumble, but they can't see the chariots coming until, boom, and they're on them, sweeping down the mountain ridge. They're also swift, too. They spread like wildfire, it says. So just think for a minute, if if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, where the the Rohirrim, they they charge down the side of that hill in, in, in the Battle of Pelennor Fields. I mean, it looks like wildfire spreading over a grassland, doesn't it? That's the idea here, the image. 
Before them, verse 6 says, peoples are in anguish and all, all faces grow pale. They turn white as a ghost, in other words. Consistent throughout Scripture, the day of the Lord will strike absolute terror in God's enemies. Isaiah 13, we read it a second ago, every human heart will melt. That day also comes with inescapable force. Note the progression in Joel's poetry here that he starts on the horizon with the dawn, right? And then in verses 3 to 5, the army has leapt over the mountains. They've devoured the field. And now, in verse 7, they're at the very city walls. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. Verse 8, they, they burst through the weapons and are not halted. Verse 9, they, they leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. And we know what happens to the women and children when the soldiers are entering through the windows. In other words, no human strength can do anything to stop the judgment from coming or escape the judgment when it arrives. Their walls don't make them safer. Their weapons don't make them safer. Their homes don't make them safer. They're all vulnerable and exposed when the day of the Lord arrives. It comes as no surprise then that no one can endure that day. That's the last thing he develops in verses 10 to 11. He says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw, they're shining. When kings would lead their thousands of chariots into battle, you could feel the vibration in the land as the king approached. But if the entire cosmos shakes, if the vast greatness of his approaching presence darkens sun, moon, and stars, we must be dealing with a far greater warrior here. And sure enough, he names him in verse 11. He names the commander of this army the Lord. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. Who, he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Would you notice here that God is no longer in the city of Zion. His presence is no longer with the people to protect them. The Lord is outside the city charging against it. Seeing the vast and powerful army is one thing. But then to realize that the only warrior capable of saving you is now charging against you with his armies, it brings the despair to a whole new level. And so Joel asks, who can endure it? They know this God. They know his might. They know his holiness. Who can endure his day? It's a question we all need to consider. God brought judgment on Israel because of their sin. They didn't remain faithful to the covenant at Mount Sinai. The locust judgment is but a taste of the much greater judgment to come. In their sins, 
they're no better off from the rest of the world. Before the day of the Lord, none of them could stand. And before the day of the Lord, none of us could stand. Like Israel, we too have broken God's covenant. We too deserve for that day to overwhelm us and to ruin us. We may want a paradise, but our sin has so earned us a barren wasteland and judgment before the holy God that we're without hope. Which is why verse 12 ought to amaze you all the more. I want you to hear the words of this same warrior king. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. So not just Joel, but the Lord Himself summons His people to repentance. Return to Me, He says. Returning to the Lord is the most common way that the Old Testament talks about repentance. Okay, At the core is this idea of having like an, an internal 180. Away from sin and to God. He says, yes, you know, fast and weep and mourn. But more than just the outward expressions of repentance, God wants the totality of our hearts. Rend your hearts, he said. This is the opposite of what Pharaoh did when the locust plague hit him. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God is calling His people not to follow in His steps. Rend your hearts down to the very core of your being. Cry to the Lord. Seek His face. There's no half-hearted repentance here. No room for just wanting the circumstances to get a little better. You must come to the Lord with your whole being. It must be Him you want. Return to Me, the Lord says. But how can we be so sure that he would accept us? Isn't this the warrior we just read about? Won't he strike us down in wrath? How is it even possible to return to him? Because, Joel adds in verse 13, the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding, slow to anger. Why'd they get a prophet in the first place? And another prophet, and another prophet, and another prophet. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He must punish the guilty, but he has a track record of choosing to show mercy to those who humble themselves before him. Do these words sound familiar to you? I mean, they're repeated a lot in Scripture. But they come from Exodus 34. Just following the golden calf incident. The people break the covenant. And God intends to wipe them out. 
He will not tolerate covenant breakers. And then Moses intercedes for them. He cries for the Lord to show mercy. And God does. They didn't deserve it, but He renews the covenant with the people. And it's at that point that God reveals His character to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So the hope for a renewed relationship with the Lord is based on God's merciful character. It's based on His steadfast love. And as we've talked about before, God's steadfast love is His unwavering commitment to save a people for Himself even when those people could offer nothing in return. When you see the faithful like Joel leaning on God's steadfast love as their only hope, they know they've got nothing. They know they've got nothing to offer in return. Their only hope is His steadfast love to provide what they cannot. To avert the judgment that they cannot escape. He asks in verse 14, Who knows? whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. It's his way of saying, God is free. He is not bound to show mercy by your prayer. He is free not to show mercy and would be just and righteous still. But based on his history based on His commitment to show mercy to a people, perhaps He will again grant you favor. And when He does, He will receive all the glory. Perhaps, Joel is telling them, perhaps your prayers will become the occasion for God to display His gracious character once again. Joel's hope is that the signs of God's presence would be restored. The grain offering, the drink offering. It's not just the offerings he wants, but what those offerings pointed to. The presence of God with them once again. And how do they walk out this repentance together? Well, in verse 15 to 16, he calls an assembly. Another trumpet sounds, but this time it's a call to worship. From elderly to nursing infants, everyone must gather to fast and pray. Note to the urgency. The bridegroom must leave his room and the bride her chamber. Joel doesn't care if Anne said, I do yet. The honeymoon must wait. There are more pressing matters. They need God more than anything else. They need God more than each other, more than sex, more than the happy times away. The day of the Lord approaches and all must must come, right? All must be certain that their hearts wholly belong to the Lord. There's not a more important relationship to tend to, in other words. And then finally, he calls the priests to act. 
In the same way that Moses had interceded for Israel in the Exodus, the priests were to intercede for the people here. Their chief concern, concerns were God's mercy for the people and God's fame among the nations. Spare your people, O Lord. That's God's mercy. That was to be their cry. And then, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? That's God's fame they're concerned about. In other words, the desire for mercy shouldn't be limited to escaping judgment. It should also include a longing for God's faithful character and God's saving power to be known beyond Israel to the nations. In summary then, the day of the Lord approaches. Joel sounds the alarm and he summons to prayer and repentance. Now God's answer will come with verse 18. And it's an outpouring of mercy beyond our imagination. The land restored, the removal of shame, the outpouring of God's presence in the Spirit. But we're going to have to wait to enjoy that answer more fully. For now, I want to draw out a few ways to respond to these first 17 verses of chapter 2. Can we go to the next slide, guys? I think we might have gotten behind here a little bit. It's probably my fault for the way I entered them. (laughs) So, there we go. Thanks. Uh... I think the first seems obvious here. Return to the Lord and do not delay. Okay? The great day of the Lord still hasn't come. 2 Thessalonians 2.2 even warns not to let others deceive us as if that day has already come. But come it will, and it will be a day like no other. There will be no mistaking it. God will shake the heavens and He will come down. So Joel's message actually serves us much much like it served his own generation. When it comes to the Lord's final day, you won't be able to escape. You won't be able to stop it. Your only hope is to bow your knee to the true warrior king and ask him to show you mercy. Please don't hear me saying that just for the people who aren't Christians. Repentance is just as necessary for Christians. Judgment begins with the household of God. Again and again, the New Testament writers call the church to repentance. I mean, James includes one of the strongest appeals in light of the day of the Lord. He says, come now, you rich. Talking to the church, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. And your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Likewise, Jesus tells the church in Pergamum to repent of their idolatry and sexual immorality 
And he says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's written to the church. Repentance is for the church. Don't sit back as if Joel's appeal doesn't appeal to Joel's appeal doesn't isn't isn't for you, as if it's only for those other types of sinners out there. There was a Pharisee who once talked like that. He didn't go home justified. No. Like the publican in Jesus' parable, our proper response to a message like Joel is always, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I also want to say to a handful of you, don't let despair lead to inaction. Perhaps you see the day of the Lord approaching. And you know you've blown it, and you know you deserve wrath. You know you deserve ruin. And in the middle of it all, you're just tempted to throw up your hands and say, Screw it. Why bother now? It's too late. Can you just hear these words more carefully? Yet, even now... Yet even now, return to me with all your heart. That's God talking. That's God pleading with you. No matter what you've done, there's still hope. So return now and do not delay. If you need someone to talk about that further, we're not in a hurry to get out of here. Come and talk to us. There'd be several of us waiting around, members here who would be more than happy to... Sit down and pray and talk more together. Next, let Joel help you with genuine repentance. Let Joel help you with genuine repentance. Notice notice how he centers repentance on a relationship with the Lord. Return to me, says the Lord. Repentance isn't just feeling guilty, repentance isn't just saying sorry. Repentance isn't even just saying no to evil. Repentance is incomplete if there's no turning to the Lord Himself. Behavioral change that's divorced from a relationship with the Lord is mere moralism and it is just as damning. Repentance is relational. I mean... Perhaps he will leave a grain offering, a a drink offering here. The presence of God is his goal in this repentance. Repentance isn't concerned with mere changes and circumstances so you can get on with a happy life. It's knowing and enjoying God. Repentance is also necessary to experience God's presence. There are places in the scripture elsewhere where it says that repentance is a gift of grace. It's a divine act in somebody's heart. God causes it. At the same time, the scriptures summon us to act. And it's through these words that the Holy Spirit works to summon you to act. And then what do you do? You act. You repent. 
So we're responsible to repent. Our relationship with God works itself out in turning away from the things God hates and giving Him more and more and more of our hearts. True repentance is also not half-hearted. He says, return to me with all of your heart. Sometimes we only pretend to repent. We tell the Lord how much we want some evil thing gone. But deep within, we really don't want to let it go. Perhaps we're in a small group and we confess this sin so that everybody can see that he's must be a broken man, and yet deep inside, you're not telling the whole story. Deep inside, you're still making excuses. Oh, it's it's not that bad. God will still forgive, won't he? Don't other Christians have the same struggle? I'd change if they would just... And on go the excuses. But as Calvin once wrote about this passage, moderate repentance will not do. Joel teaches us to rend our hearts, literally tear them to pieces before the Lord so that all is laid bare and all is ready to give Him your total allegiance. Repentance is also not just for a few folks who are caught up in major sin. It's for the whole community. It's for the faithful. Joel is leading the way. Older. We see older men here called. Younger men and women. Men and women, especially the leaders. Everybody. All must join one another in returning to the Lord and seeking His mercy together. Perhaps like Joel, the Lord has given you eyes to see evil in the culture around us and evil creeping into the church here and there. Perhaps the evil even grieves you very deeply and it causes you great concern for future days and what it holds for your children. You may even fear that God's judgment is shaking the church right now. Brother or sister, if that's you, please be the first to humble yourself in prayer. Be the first to fast and weep and mourn. Don't reduce your response to just pointing out sin. This passage is calling us to lament and to cry out to the Lord. And I fear that in a desire to expose evil in others, some of us have forgotten to pull the log out of our own eye. Some of us have forgotten to assess our own evil and our own excesses and our own need for the Lord's mercy. So let's get on our face before the Lord and come before Him together. Third, rest assured that God removes judgment in Christ. Rest assured. 
that God removes judgment and grace. I want you to recall how verse 10 depicted the day of the Lord. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Again, when God approaches in his majestic other, otherness, the world as we know it, it rocks and reels. It comes undone before him. Can I show you how the gospel writers present the death of Jesus Christ? Matthew 27, verse 45, says that from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. It's high noon, people! But God covers the land in darkness for three hours. Matthew 27, 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth, it shook, and the rocks were split. Luke 23, 44. There was darkness over the land while the sun's light failed. Darkness, the earth shaking, rocks splitting, the sun's light failing. What's with these signs? Well, if you know the book of Joel, you will understand them as characteristic of the day of the Lord. The day when God brings His wrath. God shook the earth and darkened the sky to show that the day of, the ra- the day of wrath that we deserved at the end of history. It fell on Jesus in history. In our place. Here is where we find the ultimate revelation of God's steadfast love. Here is where we find God's unwavering commitment to show mercy by saving a people for Himself. Here is where we find His steadfast love turning the judgment away and causing it to fall on Jesus instead. I mean, Joel, Joel asked, perhaps, maybe He'll give us a grain offering or a drink offering. Goodness! And He gives us His Son. The Son is His offering that He gives. It's beyond what anything Joel could imagine. Do you see what our God is like? Not to mention, I mean, we remember Hebrews not too long ago. It's also through Jesus' blood that we get to participate in the new and the heavenly Zion. A Zion that's not under the threat of God's judgment, but a Zion that's filled with celebration of God's restoring presence. Israel eventually lost the earthly Zion because of their sin, because they didn't listen to Joel. But with the death and resurrection of Christ, God has raised up another Zion. And He has set a king on Zion's hill. And it will never be shaken, the Bible says. And if you hear the alarm today in Joel's words, hide yourself in the blood of Jesus and you will be safe there in that heavenly Zion in God's presence. 
And then lastly, hold out the hope of God's steadfast love to the nations. Hold out the hope of God's steadfast love to the nations. Listen to these words again. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and and He relents over disaster. Do you plead with people like that? Is this the way you talk to people on Facebook, in emails, on phone calls? I'm talking about your enemies. You talk to them like this? Do your interactions with those going astray, do they sound like this? I hope that God would help us sound more like Joel. Yes, he gives a robust vision of God's holiness and God's justice. And he, like the other prophets, exposes the problem of sin and the need for repentance. But coupled with that is this tears and pleading to return to the Lord. Because he has shown us mercy. So I pray that God does that work in us as we have seen his mercy here in this passage. Let's pray together.